Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 179, Winning the Buyback Debate. Hi, I'm Neil. I receive many questions about Apple from Above Avalon readers, listeners, and members. In previous years, one topic has been far ahead of any other as a source of questions. Everyone wanted to know about Apple's share buyback program. Why is Apple buying back its shares? Is Tim Cook trying to take Apple private? By buying back shares, do we know anything about Apple's future product plans? Do we get product hints looking at the pace of buyback? Why doesn't Apple use cash to buy larger companies instead of putting it towards buying back its shares? Something interesting happened though in 2020. I received far fewer questions about Apple's share buyback program. To be precise, I didn't receive an incoming question about buyback in nine months from when the stock market put in a bottom in April 2020 to the start of 2021. What explains such a dramatic change? Well, that's going to be the topic for today's episode. The Apple share buyback debate ended, and Apple was declared the winner. Let's jump into this discussion by focusing on how it all started. In the early 2010s, many on Wall Street viewed Apple as the iPhone company, and the iPhone was said to be dead in the water. A few activist hedge funds began circling around Apple shares due to their low valuation metrics relative to peers in the overall market. Back then, Apple was trading at a single-digit forward price-to-earnings multiple, a valuation that's typically afforded to companies with little to no growth potential. Things were even more extreme when you looked at Apple valuation on a free cash flow basis. Apple was priced like a junk bond. In March 2012, after consulting with its top shareholders, Apple announced it would begin paying a quarterly cash dividend and buying back shares. Wall Street mostly applauded the move, at least at first. But Silicon Valley was convinced Apple had made a big mistake. Some thought Tim Cook was pressured into buying back Apple shares because a few hedge funds had suggested the idea. Those who followed the what would Steve Jobs do doctrine were convinced that Cook had placed Apple on a path to ruin, since Steve Jobs had famously viewed dividends and buyback as nothing more than distractions. At the time, none of Apple's high-growth peers were buying back shares. So that made Apple look even more like an outlier. The primary concern held by those skeptical of Apple buying back shares was that by using cash to repurchase shares, Apple would have less cash to spend on capital expenditures, CapEx, research and development, and mergers and acquisitions. Said another way, Some thought Apple was sacrificing its growth potential just to buy back shares. And a lot of this skepticism was thrown at Tim Cook. This was at a time when there were a lot of doubters that Tim Cook would be able to lead Apple after Steve Jobs. And so in some ways, the buyback announcement was viewed as, here we go again. Here's another example of Tim Cook doing the wrong thing. Looking back over Apple's sheer buyback activity, one event stands out. Passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. 
Prior to U.S. tax reform, Apple was constrained in terms of the amount of cash that could be spent on buyback. The company would be penalized for bringing foreign cash back to the U.S. to fund share buyback. As a result, Apple kept share buyback pace to between $30 billion and $45 billion per year from 2013 to 2017. That despite having more than $150 billion of net cash on the balance sheet. It may seem weird to say, but Apple had a cash problem. Or maybe I should say Apple had an excess cash problem. There is such a thing as holding on to too much cash on the balance sheet. Once U.S. tax reform was passed, things changed. Apple brought back its foreign cash and more attractive tax rates. As a result, Apple's sheer buyback pay shot higher and has been trending at $70 billion per year since 2018. The most recent year, fiscal year 2020, Apple spent $73 billion on sheer buyback. That's a big number. Since beginning to repurchase shares in 2013, Apple has spent a total of $380 billion buying back 10.6 billion shares. Run the math, and those shares were repurchased at an average price of $35.80 per share. It's tempting to think that Apple's share buyback has been a success merely because Apple shares are trading 265% higher than the average price management paid to repurchase shares. However, one cannot judge buyback's effectiveness or success by merely looking at the current stock price. I do think it's important to point out that Apple retires repurchase shares, so there aren't unrealized gains on the balance sheet from Apple's previously repurchased shares. Share repurchases aren't meant to boost stock prices, even though some management teams may strive for such an outcome. Instead, share buyback is a tool for removing excess cash from balance sheets. In the process, a wealth transfer event is possible, as ownership is shifted from shareholders willing to sell shares back to the company to those shareholders not selling shares. This is one reason why share buybacks are not created equally. Some companies incorrectly think buyback is a way to solve a problematic business model or lack of future growth, while other companies see share buyback as a tool for balance sheet optimization. The above Avalon report titled Share Buyback 101, an examination of Apple's share repurchase strategy, contains much more detail about share buyback in general, including this concept of wealth transfer. So if you're interested in that report, it is available to above Avalon members. I will include a link to it in the show notes. By repurchasing shares, a company doesn't face brighter future prospects or even a higher stock price. We can look at the long list of companies with stock prices that declined once share buyback concluded. Accordingly, a share buyback program's effectiveness cannot and should not be judged by a company's stock price. We saw this dynamic on full display in the energy sector a few years ago when companies were buying back stock as oil was hitting record high after record high. Those share repurchases didn't do anything to prevent the stock price from falling once the environment shifted. Another example is found during the financial crisis. If we go back to 2007, 2008, you had financial companies buying back stock when everything was great. Once things stopped being great, stock prices fell, balance sheets blew up, 
these same companies who were buying back their shares had to actually issue shares at a much lower price. This is one of many reasons why when a company announces buyback, I have to take a look at why the company is announcing the buyback. What is going on with that company? What is happening to that company's business model? For some companies, at some times, share buyback is a really great tool. For other companies, share buyback should raise red flags. This is also why when the market has its rough periods and some market participants go after buyback, they attack buyback. When that happens, I become very outspoken on this because buyback is not created equally. So yes, there may be industries that should never have been buying back their stock, but that doesn't mean that you throw buyback under the bus because there are other industries that are actually benefiting from buyback. They are using it as a tool. And again, without going into too much detail, we're not talking about buyback as creating value. That's not what's happening here. Instead, we're looking at buyback as a means of managing a balance sheet, balance sheet optimization. It's not ideal holding a lot of excess cash in the balance sheet. And we are also talking about a wealth transfer event in which you don't have all shareholders selling their shares back to the company buying back stock. You have some shareholders selling their shares. So for those who are just sticking to their positions, they are not selling their stock back to the company. Well, what's going to happen during a buyback? Their ownership stake in that company will increase. This is a big thing behind Warren Buffett being interested in Apple. He looks at buyback as a way for him to get a bigger share of Apple without actually needing to buy additional shares. At this point of the discussion, I want to focus more on the debate that was surrounding Apple's buyback. Consensus agreed that Apple was holding on to too much cash on the balance sheet. However, there were differing opinions as to what Apple should do to remove the excess cash. Some thought that Apple should go on an M&A shopping spree. Twitter, Apple should buy it. How about Tesla? Apple should buy it. Netflix, yep, Apple should buy that as well. Others thought Apple should ramp R&D so that as a percent of revenue, Apple's R&D spending would be in line with that of its tech peers. Instead of pursuing questionable expenditures such as large-scale M&A, paying special dividends, simply saying yes to every R&D project imaginable, Apple instead saw an opportunity to both manage its balance sheet to a net cash neutral position and simultaneously invest in its future. A net cash neutral position means the amount of cash equals the amount of debt on the balance sheet. Apple's share buyback debate didn't end because Apple shares traded above a certain level, Apple repurchased shares below intrinsic value, or the company's cash levels declined below a certain threshold. Instead, the buyback debate ended because Apple was able to successfully demonstrate that it can pile cash into buyback at record levels while also investing in its future at the same time. With Apple's share buyback pace remaining at record levels, the company has been able to ramp up R&D to record levels while continuing to fund CapEx and pursue intelligent M&A. This raises a question. Why did so many people 
underestimate Apple's ability to both buy back shares and invest in its future at the same time? I think there are two reasons. The first, people overestimated the amount of cash Apple actually needed to run the business and invest in the future. The second reason, people underestimated Apple's ability to generate free cash flow. As a percent of revenue, Apple's R&D has historically been lower than that of its peers. Instead of this reflecting Apple underinvesting in R&D, the lower percentage reflects Apple's unique culture and approach to product development. A better approach to take when judging Apple's R&D spending is to compare current expenditures to historical totals. Apple spent more on R&D in fiscal year 2020 than the total it spent on R&D cumulatively from fiscal year 2010 to fiscal year 2014. You're not going to find any evidence of Apple curtailing its R&D efforts because it has to fund buyback. It's not happening. Turning to CapEx, capital expenditures. Apple's CapEx needs are less than those of its peers. Apple has a CapEx light business model because the company doesn't offer free services to billions of people with a monetization strategy revolving around ads. This results in less property, plant, and equipment requirements. The takeaway here is that people were overestimating the amount of cash Apple needed to fund itself, essentially, to fund future growth. Turning to M&A, Apple isn't interested in buying products and users, a strategy that would likely be met with failure given the difficulty found with assimilating a target's culture. Instead, Apple uses M&A to fill asset holes in the form of accessing technology and talent. This lends itself to Apple pursuing smaller deals involving companies with less in the way of thriving business models and premium price tags. Again, this goes back to this idea that Apple just does not need as much cash to invest in itself and to fund future growth opportunities. Based on my estimates, Apple requires $10 billion to $15 billion per year to maintain and invest in property plan equipment and pursue intelligent M&A. Meanwhile, Apple's business model predisposes the company to superior free cash flow generation. In fiscal year 2020, Apple generated $71 billion of free cash flow. The lack of significant CapEx requirements means that a high percentage of its operating cash flow ends up being free cash flow. Apple's superior free cash flow generation, combined with its investment run rate, allows the company to return tens of billions of dollars of excess cash to shareholders each year. This isn't cash that would have been better suited for more R&D, additional CapEx, or M&A. Instead, the cash spent on buyback ends up keeping Apple management more disciplined and focused on proper and intelligent spending. One of the more fascinating observations regarding Apple buyback and really Apple's corporate finance strategy is how Apple has become a leader in the space. Following Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon have each subsequently announced their own share buyback program. Not surprisingly, none of those companies face the kind of pushback that Apple faced during the last decade with its own buyback. Instead, Apple peers were applauded for announcing buyback. Consensus was convinced that Apple was buying back shares at the expense of its future growth potential. In reality, Apple's growth potential has improved as its well-funded product strategy has allowed the company to pull away from the competition. In just the past five years, Apple has grown the iPhone install base 
from 570 million people to a billion users. And Apple's ecosystem growth momentum is building. There are hundreds of millions of people who own only one Apple device, an iPhone. Given high satisfaction rates and high loyalty rates, these customers are looking to go deeper into the Apple ecosystem by buying more Apple products, by paying for more Apple services. Apple's wearables business has grown to the size of a Fortune 130 firm. Apple's services business went from a $20 billion to a $54 billion annual revenue run rate over the past five years. In fiscal year 2020, Apple's non-iPhone revenue growth, one of the best measures of ecosystem expansion, was 16%. There are still some questions worth asking regarding Apple's share buyback. For example, if Apple shares trading at premium valuation multiples to the market, what is management's approach to the buyback pace? However, when it's a question of whether or not Apple management can buy back shares while also investing in its future, the debate has ended, and Apple was declared the winner. That's going to do it for today's episode. For additional discussion on this topic, check out the Above Avalon Daily update from January 14th. In that update, I go over how Wall Street's approach to share purchases has changed over the years when it comes to the tech giants buying back their stock. In addition, I went over the three phases of Apple's share buyback program and where I think Apple is among those three phases. The update concludes with my estimates for Apple's share buyback pace going forward. So how much do I think Apple will spend on buyback each year going out a number of years? All of those stories are found in the daily update from January 14th. So I will include a link to that update in the show notes. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in the Above Avalon podcast and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you would be interested in checking out Above Avalon membership. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. These updates are emails. They're 2,000 words each. They're sent via Monday through Thursday directly into your inbox. Updates revolve around Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on the Apple news cycle and all of the competitors that Apple faces, my financial estimates for Apple, and of course, full coverage of Apple earnings, product unveilings, and keynotes. If it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to in the daily updates. To check out a few sample daily updates, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com and go to the daily updates page. I include three sample daily updates so you can get a feel for what a daily update is like. The written daily updates are also available in audio form. So there is an exclusive private podcast. It's called Above Avalon Daily. New episodes come out Monday through Thursday. Each episode's about 15 minutes. So the Above Avalon Daily podcast allows the written daily updates to be accessible beyond your screens. So you can listen around the house, on a walk, or in the car. And there are two sample episodes available to listen. All you have to do is, once on AboveAvalon.com, just go to the daily podcast page. The private podcast is designed as an add-on feature, so you can attach it to an existing membership. For more information on Above Avalon membership, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com, go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month 
or $200 per year. Once on the membership page, you can also check out all of the other member benefits and privileges. There are also answers to frequently asked questions. If you're interested in signing up for an Above Avalon membership with the podcast add-on already attached, all you have to do is go to the daily podcast page and there are two membership options available. It's either $30 per month or $300 per year. Once you purchase the podcast add-on, all prior episodes will appear in your podcast player after signing up. With there now being 74 episodes available, that is probably somewhere around 19 hours of audio. So that's quite a bit. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are already an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.